Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And it wasn't really until he stepped into rehearsal with the dancers, the guide dancers, that I saw for the first time the star of Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the Silent Giants Podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at at Corey Cambridge. Our special guest this episode is Vincent Patterson, the legendary choreographer for pop music icon Michael Jackson. Vincent is responsible for creating some of MJ's most iconic dance moves. He directed and choreographed Michael's Bad Tour, as well as conceiving and choreographing Smooth Criminal. He choreographed other Michael Jackson music videos, like Black or White, The Way You Make Me Feel, Dirty Diana, Speed Demon. He even choreographed Michael Jackson's Super Bowl halftime performance in 1991. Vincent even invented the crotch grab. You could also find Vincent in that famous fight scene from Beat It. He was also a zombie in the Thriller music video. When you're watching some of Michael's iconic work, you're really watching Michael Jackson dance just like Vincent Patterson. Crazy to think about, right? Vincent also worked with Madonna, choreographing her iconic music video for Express Yourself and Vogue. Who doesn't know Madonna's famous Vogue pose? Vincent is such a mega silent giant that it's impossible for me to fit everything into one hour-long interview. So I decided to focus the direction of this interview on Vincent's life and his experience working with Michael Jackson. I hope to one day bring you a part two, but I'm sure you're going to love this very special episode. In this interview, Vincent Patterson goes in depth about his childhood outside of Philadelphia, how he got into dance, working as an assistant to Michael Peters who choreographed Thriller and Beat It music videos, how he became Michael Jackson's lead choreographer, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the iconic choreographer, director, my friend, the silent giant, Vincent Patterson. Vincent, how's everything, man? Tell me, tell me about everything. How's life? Oh, things are good. You know, I was telling Mark, I just came back from um, 
helping my mother, who's almost 88, through a hip replacement surgery. And uh, I was saying how exciting it is to have lived in the dance world for, you know, 35 years and know so much about the body that I could give her more specific information than her physical therapist or even her doctor in terms of healing. So I came back feeling really um, overjoyed and cathartic that I was able to give something back to her like that, you know, really help her through this and get her back on her feet. So I'm in a good space, really good space right now. That's awesome. That's awesome. Because Vincent, where, where are you from originally? I'm from outside of Philadelphia. I'm down down by uh, Chester, Pennsylvania. It's kind of a uh, Delaware County. Uh, it's between Philadelphia and Wilmington along the Delaware River. That's where I'm from. Okay. Okay. What was it like growing up there? Ooh, that's a dark question. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't that much fun, to be honest. You know, it was really a very um, cross between rural and um, super poor blue collar community. Um you know, it was basically people worked in the oil refineries and you either worked in the oil refineries or you worked at the pizza parlor or an auto mechanic garage or a funeral parlor. And that's kind of about what, what went on there, you know. So um, I grew up really poor and um, couldn't wait to get out. So I, I was fortunate enough to be intelligent enough to think ahead and worked my butt off to get high grades in high school because... I knew I had to get out and the only way I could get out was to go to college and we had no money. So uh, fortunately, I did really well in high school and um, participated in a lot of things from sports to yearbook and all of that kind of situation and got a lot of help, financial assistance to go to school. And that really changed my life and set me on a path, you know. Now, as far as, uh, you know, I always ask in the beginning of, of every episode, you know, what your parents do. Um, and where you're from, because I'm a firm believer that, you know, what your parents do and where you're from is a humongous part of how we develop uh, as people. Uh, so what, what did your parents do uh, professionally? Well, um, my mom did nothing. She was a housewife. Um, and I mean, did nothing. God forbid I should say that. And she should hear me. My mother was a housewife <laughs> and a mother taking care of five kids, uh, and especially when my dad left when I was around 12 and I'm the eldest one. And so she took care of all five of us, you know, and really, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here. Um, but she had a lot of art, art history in her that was never um, actualized or realized, which makes me kind of sad. But uh, she, you know, in, in, inside, she was really a, an artist. Uh, my father was did a lot of different things to just keep food on the table. Uh, but the one thing that he stuck with was being a social dance teacher, um, not a ballroom dance teacher. And in fact, if somebody ever called him a ballroom dance teacher, he probably would have hit them. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, everybody danced socially, meaning they danced together, whether it was um, for a baptism or a picnic in the backyard, you know, everybody got up and danced. Um and so that's what he did. He taught people how to dance who wanted to go to weddings and wanted to do all of that. And so I got a lot of that from him and knew how to do the basics of social dance, you know, cha-cha, mambo, jitterbug, foxtrot, all that kind of stuff. When I was about five years old, um, came really easily to me, but I never picked it up till years and years and years later. What about on your mother's side? I know that she was 
working from um, from home and raising five kids. But what about uh, her her influence in your life helps you professionally and as a person? Well, um, you know, my mother was always really supportive. And um, even though, like I said, we were really super poor and my dad left early and I was the eldest of the five kids, you know, she just was very, very supportive of any dream that we would have. She wasn't able to assist us financially in any way, but she was certainly encouraging. And that means a lot when you come from um, the kind of town that I came from. I was probably one of a handful, I'm going to say under 10 people, uh, high school seniors out of a graduating class of close to 300 who went on to further education. And, you know, my mom didn't really help me fill out forms like moms do today. And, you know, we never even had a car. So uh, I'd never even walked into a bank until I was in college. So that's how poor we were. But um, she was just always there, very supportive. And because I was the oldest, we kind of became almost brother and sister more than mom and mom and kid, you know, and and that influenced a lot in me in terms of the way that I dealt with authority, the way that I dealt with uh, older people. Um, And I think that carried over into a little bit of dealing with celebrities because when you kind of break that bond at the beginning of thinking that, you know, like someone like your mother has to, you can only confide in her for certain things. And that, that, that barrier is broken down and you can talk about anything. Um, it kind of gives you a different sense of yourself in the world. And I I feel that that was one of the greatest influences besides supporting me, just kind of breaking that barrier between the ages. And, um, and again, I really think that that gave me the confidence in, in, in my dealing with major celebrities to just say everything I felt and be the person that I am and be as honest as I am. So, uh, and Vincent, we have, uh, one thing in, very much in common is that, you know, around the same age as me is, um, you know, my father left when I was around 11 or 12 years old, um, too. And that had a major impact, um, maybe not at the moment when I was 12, but as I developed to an adult and I had more of a vantage point to look at the past and see, wow, that had a big impact on me in certain particular ways or decisions that I've made. Uh, how did your father, um, at age 12, stepping away out of in your life as a child impact you? Uh, well, of course it was cathartic. Um, but on the other hand, they had a really fiery and violent relationship. So we were very happy to see him go, you know, and he was an alcoholic. So, uh, a functioning alcoholic. Um, so we had been sort of pushing my mom for years to get a divorce, but, you know, I grew up in the late fifties, early sixties, and people didn't really get divorced that time. They were, it was kind of a taboo. You were embarrassed to even speak about something like that. But, you know, all five of us, even my little sister were pushing, pushing, pushing her to just, you know, step away from this man. And I continued a relationship with him till he died. But, um, we were very happy to not have him around, honestly. So, so uh, at what point did you, you know, fall in love with with dance, and you knew that dance was going to be not just a thing that you enjoy, uh, but a thing that you could kind of pursue as a profession? Well, I think my first love of dance was uh, high school dances because um, I I had a great time. Um, first of all, I danced really well; it was natural to me, and so a lot of the coolest and 
uh, best looking girls always wanted to dance with me. So that was fantastic. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, I could go to the uh, pretty much all black high school that was near us and um, dance my butt off, dance my ass off. And the ladies wanted to dance with me. And that was really great because, of course, they were the dancers, especially around Philly. You know, I mean, that was that was that was what was happening. And I was the guy who was able to call out all the line dances. So that was really fun, too. But I left that all behind and got into theater uh, and not musical theater or anything, just theater. I was I was in love with theater. I wanted to be an actor, wanted to be a director eventually. Um, and it wasn't until after I graduated from college, I moved, I was on my way to LA and I stopped in Tucson, Arizona to visit some friends. And it was the middle of January and I fell in love with the desert and the heat of 85 degrees in the middle of January. And I said, I think I'm stopping in Tucson for a while. Well, while I was there, I kept passing a little dance studio and I knew nothing about dance. I had never seen dance other than maybe, I'm trying to think if I ever saw it. I was not a big musical film person. I didn't really watch those things. Uh, But I heard this music all the time coming out of this studio and I opened the door one day and went in. There was a woman there, her name was Stephanie Steigers and it was a ballet academy, so to speak. And uh, it was a bunch of girls that were like maybe... 10 to 15 years old. And I said, hey, you know, maybe I should take something like this for exercise. Do you have an adult class? And she said, no, I just have this class. But if you want to come in and take it, you can. So um, I started, I entered the dance world by taking ballet classes with uh, these little girls. And again, they were so encouraging because I could, I was, I was an adult, so I could jump high and I could lift them. And, you know, it was, uh, it was nothing but a positive experience. And in Tucson at the time, there were several small companies. And because I had a strong acting background, um, a lot of these companies came to me and said, Hey man, we'll do an exchange with you. They needed men, of course, they were very sparse to have male dancers in Tucson, particularly. And uh, they said, you can have free classes with us um, and we'll give you a little money if we get to perform someplace. I said, sounds good to me. So that's what I did. I stayed in Tucson for about four years and I studied and studied and studied. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to try the dance thing. So I had a choice of going back to New York, back to the East Coast or heading out to L.A. And from the time I was a little kid, I always wanted to move to L.A., I don't know why everyone thought I was crazy. I was the first person in my entire family on both sides, close to 100 people who ever left that area, who ever moved with, with uh, further than five miles away from the rest of the family. So I was a real kind of adventuresome guy and moved to L.A. And that's kind of how it all began. Now, uh, tell me uh, about that move. Do you remember the story of moving from Tucson uh, to L.A. specifically? Do I have a story about that? Yeah. Uh, Do you remember exactly like packing up your bags and and that move out? And where did you move in L.A. when you got there? Well, uh, when I moved, um, I I, I didn't know anybody here. Um, I had come a couple times when I was in Tucson to take a class or two uh, from Bill and Jackie Landrum, from Joe Tremaine, um, just to kind of see what that was about. And it was leaps and bounds above anything I was getting in Tucson. So I just decided I wanted to try it. Um, I, I didn't know anybody and someone had given me the name of this, um, fantastic guy, uh, a black 
black ex-vet who was the most outrageous queen that I had ever seen in my entire life and probably the person with the biggest heart that I've ever met in my entire life. He had so little and I he let me stay um, on the floor of the living room uh, over by the couch. All I had was a sleeping bag and a backpack and uh, yeah, that was kind of it. There was a girl who also lived with us and... Um, she was like a working girl, so to speak. <laughs> I'll be very polite. And uh, she had a couple French poodles. So, yeah, it was uh, it was the three of us and two French poodles. Uh, and, and I had my own little world in the uh, on my backpack with my backpack and sleeping bag over in the corner. And um, I auditioned. Uh, I moved in January and I auditioned for everything I possibly could um, for nine months. And um Finally, I, I, I hadn't eaten in a couple of days and a friend took me to, to have lunch and uh, I saw a sign that said waiter wanted and I thought, all right, this is a sign. I'm supposed to give up dance and be a waiter. So I went to apply and they said, oh, you got to come back at nighttime for the manager to be here on the night shift. So I went back to take what I thought was my last dance class and a choreographer named Joe Bennett called the studio where I was and a gentleman came in and said, hey, is Vincent Patterson in here? I, I was concerned. First of all, I didn't know how anybody could have tracked me down. But second, I thought it was something that happened to somebody in my family. So I went outside and got the phone and and Joe said, hey, man, I'm looking for uh, one more male dancer for a TV show I'm doing. And a choreographer who unfortunately is not with us any longer, Lester Wilson, who I had auditioned for, uh, gave me your name. Um, can I come and watch? Can I come over and watch you in class for a while? I said, please. So he came over and watched me for about 15 or 20 minutes and called me out and gave me my first job. And that's kind of how it all began. And it just kept rolling on from there. You know, we're living in the era now. If I wanted to to get into auditions, I can, you know, I can Google it. <laughs> you know, moving into L.A. at that time. And what age? Uh, I'm sorry. What year was this roughly? Uh, that was move? like um, around 19... Um, uh, 1979, so I think. Yeah. In 1979, you know, you're, you're an aspiring dancer. You make the move out to LA. How do you even go about getting those early auditions? There were no dance agents at the time that, that whole concept didn't even exist. Uh, and no acting or talent agency of any kind would ever consider taking on a dancer. So you basically found out about it through word of mouth, through people in class uh, sometimes uh, notices would be posted up on the dance studios. That's kind of the way it was. And then uh, the Hollywood Reporter used to have a page where auditions were happening. So those were basically the three ways, word of mouth, seeing a posting on, on a, a, you know, a board, uh, or maybe finding something in Variety or the Hollywood Reporter. At this time, you're, you're coming from Tucson, and you're, you moved to Los Angeles. Uh, how was your confidence level as a performer at this time? I, I know me coming from Virginia and making the move to New York, it was kind of an adjustment of confidence of like, I don't know anybody here. Am I really as good as I believe that I am? Or I, I thought I was good in Richmond where I was from. How was your confidence level making the move out to LA? Well, first of all, um, I knew that my performance level was very strong because I had trained as an actor and I have a degree in acting and directing. So I knew that as a performer, whether it was live or on camera, I knew I would, it's hard for me to say because I don't really brag, but 
I knew that I would be good. You know, I knew that I would probably be better than most people here because I had already had a degree and I had studied this and I had been very successful as an actor, not only in college, but after I got out and I, I, I had the lead in a play by Genet at Society Hill Playhouse in Philadelphia. So I knew my acting chops were really there. Um, and, you know, I studied hard when I was in Tucson. I took so I, I really put myself through it. Um, I was a fanatic, man. I was a fanatic. I took ballet. I took modern. I took jazz. I took flamenco. I took tap for, um, you know, several years before I decided to co come to L.A. And the minute I got to L.A., uh, I, all I did was study. I would study for six five, six classes a day sometimes, you know. Um, I, I was crazy. But that's how I am when I'm when I fall in love with something, I become a fanatic. I become fanatical about it. And um, so uh, there were obviously things to learn um, always. And I continue to do that. But at the time, uh, I felt that my presentation was good. My technique was good. I think it was just a matter of people seeing me in auditions several times before they picked me out because nobody knew who I was. You know, everybody else knew it was a community already. And I was just a new guy in that community. And also because I look a lot younger than I, I looked a lot younger than I was. So even though I was in my late 20s, all the choreographers thought that I was like 21 or something. So that gave me a bit more longevity. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. Let's go back to that, that first job to being on the television show. Do you remember that television show? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was called CBS Presents or CBS Tonight or something. And um, I remember that it starred Dick Van Dyke. Uh, and I remember that uh, I, I I played a, a, several things. One of them was a big clown act. And I actually had my picture as a clown in the uh, TV guide. And, uh, you know, it was so much fun because I could call up my mom and say, hey, my, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this, man. My picture's in the TV guide, you know, my first job. <laughs> so <laughs> you never would have known it was me, but that's OK. She did and I did. So uh, that was the good part. Um, I don't remember a lot about that actual job other than those specific things, you know. Wow. And, and so what was the next step for you after that? Uh, was to do two things. I had two goals. One was to continue to keep my technique um, right at, at a prime, prime level. So I was always in class and to continue to work. You know, I, I was fortunate enough because, you know, at that time I was the right height, the right look, you know, uh, and all American looking kind of guy and, uh, you know, and it worked. So once I started working, I just, continued to work. I did a lot of television. Uh, I got a great gig uh, touring the world for a while with Shirley MacLaine. And uh, that was a huge step because that was some, uh, that was a kind of plum job that everybody wanted. And, uh, and, and so I did that for a while and then came back and then kind of did a bit more TV and some commercials and got to travel to Japan doing, being in commercials twice. And uh, I liked it. Yeah, it was, it was, things were going well. I always say, you know, that greatness, um, typically people who achieve great things or people who are the greatest of their profession, uh, typically had very strong mentorship, um, in the thing that they were skilled at. At this time in LA or maybe even before LA in Tucson or 
maybe back in Pennsylvania, was there someone that you viewed as a mentor that helped you professionally, helped you develop your style, showed you how to be a professional? Uh, is there any person, was there any person like that in your life at this time? Well, um, I, I totally, uh, I, I believe that mentors and gurus are, uh, that you need to always track them down because our knowledge is limited, uh, limited by experience or books or class, but you need to have someone who can give you more understanding of what it is exactly you're trying to do or trying to become. I was fortunate enough, my first mentor was a man named David Brubaker back at Dickinson College where I went to school. And, um, you know, he knew that I was really wanted to be an actor and a director, and he encouraged me to start my own first theater company, which I did and went really well for three years while I was at school. And after, I, I didn't do it in my freshman year. I did it for the second three years and very successful. And um, he really taught me about believing in myself and trusting my instincts. And then when I moved out here, I certainly had mentors. My three uh, most important and persuasive mentors were uh, Michael Peters, who uh, I assisted for a long time through um, through not only uh, television and commercial projects, but also through Beaded and Thriller. Uh, and then a couple named Bill and Jackie Landrum. And uh, I took class with them every single day and danced with their company for a while. So those three people, there were many other teachers that I respected, but those three people really, really infused a, 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 a honest love of dance because they loved dance so much. And they were so devoted to the art form. And I was so devoted to the three of them that I just kind of all felt together. So I think, you know, those four people were the major influences in my early career. Uh, how did it come to be that you would uh, meet Michael Peters? How'd that happen? Class. I went to class. He was teaching class. And I, I he was surprised. I'll be honest with you. He, he said, I never saw a white boy dance like that. So, uh, <laughs> and there was something about, my, Michael was probably the fastest moving choreographer that I've ever met in my entire life. And, and I think everybody who knew him and worked with him or took class from him will confirm that. But for some reason, we had this internal connection that I was the only person who could be like, bam, one beat behind him. I mean, he would do spinning and leaping and down to the floor and up to up in the, and he was only like five foot eight, this little wiry guy. And I'm six foot tall, 185, you know? So, but man, I was behind him one beat, no matter what he did. And then my middle name is Leonard, although I hated the name Lenny. So consequently he would call me Lenny all the time and <laughs> he would do all this shit. And then he would turn around and say to me, okay, Lenny, what did I do? Bam, I was able to give it right back to him. So we created an, an we had an incredible working relationship together and a, and a nice friendship. And, um, and he was just at the beginning of his career and he really wanted to choreograph. He had been this other gentleman who I spoke of, Lester Wilson's prin principal dancer. And uh, I worked with Lester and danced beside Michael. Um, when I came back from Shirley MacLaine, I had money in my pocket in the bank for the first time in my life. And so I, I said to Michael Peters, listen, why don't I, why don't I pay for us to have the studio for like four hours or three hours a night to, at the end of the night, let's do it like four or five times a week. 
and you play, you become the choreographer you want to become. So he said, okay, great. So he picked like six people and I picked like six people. And then we all came every night for, I don't know, months. And we, and we were Michael Peters clay and we did whatever he wanted us to do. And we gave him the opportunity to become a choreographer, to find his craft and his skill. And he gave us the most amazing education that we ever could have had. Ask a lot of folks on the podcast uh, this question, because sometimes in, in life you're, you're living and you're just living your life. You're living the day to day. You're doing your everyday job. You're getting something to eat. You're going to catch a movie. You know, you're hanging out with friends. But are you at this time cognizant that you are hanging out with the, you know, potential future legends of dance? Are you cognizant of the scene and who these people are at this time? Or is it just these are my friends and I'm I'm living life? Yeah, the latter. I mean, we certainly all believed that Michael Peters was amazingly gifted. I mean, that wasn't there was no doubt about that, especially within the the small group that we had. But a lot of other people weren't aware of Michael. So um, you know, it, it wasn't until after actually he did Dream Girls. Uh, in New York, he co-choreographed Dreamgirls with Michael Bennett. And uh, that sort of put him on the map. And from Beat It, I mean, from that, it led Bob Giraldi, director from New York, who was asked to direct Beat It. He chose Michael Peters because he had seen his work in New York in Dreamgirls. And mm. um, yeah, and so, you know, things just fall into place. Um, when it's meant to happen, somehow it's meant to happen. So, uh, how did you get that that phone call or word from Michael Peters that you were going to uh, be doing, uh, being involved in Beat It? How that happened? Well, I had to audition, uh, even though I was assistant. Um, I had to audition, and um, the fun thing about the audition for me was that remember I was an actor, so. Uh, Michael Peters told me that it was going to be something about gangs, kind of West Side Story-ish, uh, but he didn't know what. But it was going to be definitely be about, you know, kind of L.A. Street gang concept. So I went as a, as a street guy, you know. All the other guys showed up in, like, stretch uh, dance pants and leg warmers and little stretch tank tops. And I came in in boots and jeans and... Um, a jacket, and uh, I had—I uh, actually had on that yellow and black T-shirt that I wore and beaded. Eventually, I had let my beard grow a little bit. I had an earring in my ear. I had kind of greased my hair out a little bit. I looked a little dangerous, you know. And everybody else looked like dancers. So the fact that I looked like that, and that I could dance, uh, and that I could dance Michael Peters' work really well. Michael Jackson and Bob Girardi were up in the front and I instantly saw Michael Jackson talk to Michael Peters and say, you know, who's that guy? Who's that guy? And, uh, but they didn't tell any of us who got it. And then later in the evening, uh, I got the call from Michael Peters and he said, uh, he said, well, doll. And I was like, what, what, what? He goes, Oh, no, Char, you got to come over to my house, Char. Come on, come on, get your ass over here to my house, doll. I got some shit to tell you. So I came over. He lived a couple blocks away, and um, and he said, well, doll, 
You're going to be the leader of one of the gangs. And you know what, Chaw? I'm going to be the other leader. Oh, my God. We started <laughs> screaming and jumping around like two, like, eight-year-olds, you know, at Christmas time or something. It was just nuts. It was really, really nuts. So that's, yeah, that was how I found out. <laughs> now, 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 once again, you know, I know I asked this question, you know, a few minutes ago. But once again, you know, Michael Jackson is obviously a star. But with the development of this is the first really big budget music video, um, because the, uh, Billie Jean, directed by Steve Barron, was a notable video, but it wasn't really a big budget production the way that Beat It was. And I credit Beat It with being the first big budget music video. Do you still at this time understand the magnitude of what you're going to be a part of? Do you un- understand the magnitude of the Thriller album and this song in particular, Beat It? You know. Michael Jackson really wasn't Michael Jackson yet. He was Michael Jackson from the Jackson Five. And I mean, when he came to rehearsals, there was no bodyguard. Nobody stopped him in the hall to ask for an autograph. You know, I don't even remember anybody going like, oh, that's Michael Jackson when he walked through the Debbie Reynolds dance studio, you know? Um, No. Uh, And he was very quiet and very unassuming and... We had no idea, no, no idea that it would be as big as it was. Now, jumping ahead a minute, when Thriller was about to happen, everything had already changed. So that was a whole different thing for all of us involved with that, because after the success of Beat It, man, we knew Thriller was going to be killer. So, uh, but stepping in to Beat It, no, it was Billie Jean, and, and that was cool, but... It was Billie Jean, you know? I mean, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was the first, it was the door opening for Michael Jackson where he was stepping into becoming Michael Jackson and that where he actually began to become the Michael Jackson that we know and love was through the video Beat It. Well, I shouldn't even say video. He didn't, he hated the term. Short films, he called them. The short film Beat It. Now, tell me about working you know, with Michael Jackson and Michael Peters during this time. Now, when you're you're going through the rehearsals, are they coming up with the choreography kind of on the fly? Or is this already something that's already been re- uh, rehearsed between the two of them and you're learning that material? No, rehearse first with Michael Peters and myself. Um, okay. that's, the, that's kind of the process. Uh, I don't really know what the process is now with, with new choreographers, but at the time... The process was pretty much with any celebrity that you were dealing with is the choreographer and the assistant would go into the room and work and play. Um, sometimes the, uh, the celebrity would then come in and join the choreographer and the assistant. Sometimes all the dancers would learn everything first and then the celebrity would come and get filled in, which is what happened on Thriller. But on Beat It, it didn't happen quite that way. It was that Michael Peters put it together And I assisted him and then Michael Jackson came in and pretty much learned everything that Michael Peters did. He didn't question anything. He didn't doubt anything. He just learned it. And uh, then he came in to rehearsal with the rest of the guys and we all danced it together, you know. Um, But he, as I said, he was, he was just becoming the, the man who I knew for 18 years, you know, he was unassuming and quiet and shy and an occasional giggle. Uh, but yeah, he just did the work, you know, and it wasn't really until he stepped into rehearsal with 
the dancers, the guy dancers that I saw for the first time, the star of Michael Jackson, the energy that came off his body when he stepped into that mode. It was like he stepped on the accelerator butt pedal and blew out the universe, man. Um, yeah, I got chills right now thinking about it, but, um, yeah. Uh, and that was really his first step into, into the King of Pop. Yeah. Now, uh, tell me your experience about being on, on the set, uh, of Beat It. Uh, like how much time did you have to, uh, to work on the choreography, learn the choreography to the time that you were on the set and tell me about the experience of, of being there on the set. Oh, geez, man. I can't remember that. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's a long time ago. I mean, you're talking generations here now. Uh, I don't really remember. I think we may have had like two days of rehearsal or something. And I mean, there was only, in Beat It, there was only that one little tiny section of dance at the end. That was it, you know. Uh, everything else that had to do with the drama, the dramatic shots that were shot, were shot on the fly. That, that just happened down there. We never did any rehearsal for that. So... You know, I think maybe we had two days of rehearsal. Maybe. Could have been one day of rehearsal. And maybe it was a one or two night shoot. I can't really remember, but it certainly wasn't anything that happened like it did later. I mean, we got down there and we did it. There were a lot of problems with the gangs. Um, it was the Crips and the Bloods, and they hated each other. And they were very naive about the experience. And um, they were waiting for their money and the food, and they kept complaining about when do we get the money and when do we get the food and they thought that you take one shot and that's the end but when they had to keep being in the background to repeat shots they kind of got pretty pissed off but they did the, the money was promised and and uh and it was all there so the, the set stayed happy and everybody did their best work uh yeah when the video is completed and you see the final cut do you remember seeing the video you know, being finished for the first time. And tell me that feeling uh, of seeing it. Yeah, well, I saw it. Um, a bunch of us went over to Michael Peter's house and we saw it. That was the first time that I saw it, it was actually on MTV. And um, so, uh, I, honestly, I don't remember exactly my sentiments, but I can imagine that I was pretty darn happy, you know? I mean, not only with all of the screen time that I got, um, but that I was I'm very specific and very particular about, you know, the way I move and, um, and, and being pleased or not pleased. And I'm usually a little bit too critical of myself, but I felt really good about the work I had done in that piece. And, um, yeah. And I just remember we were all over there screaming and partying and, uh, yeah, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. Cause you also had one of the most, you know, iconic, you know, scenes in music, video history with the the knife scene yeah you know what well, what about uh the when your mother saw it for the first time i know she had to be extremely proud you know uh what was that like sharing that joy with your mom uh like it is with everything you know my mom doesn't go my mom doesn't go overboard uh, she loves me no matter what and so she was proud of me she'd seen me in things all through college and in Philadelphia. So she, she'd seen me do a lot of things. And by that time too, you know, she had seen me on a lot of television shows and in commercials and stuff. So it wasn't like the first time she ever saw me on television. And my mom wasn't really a major Michael Jackson fan. So 
and videos were so new that nobody really kind of knew what they were. So my mom, I don't think ever saw MTV. Uh, I, 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 I don't really remember, but um, I'm sure she was extremely positive about it. And she always has been and supportive, but you know, not now I'll tell you, if I had danced on a video with Johnny Mathis, that would have been a whole other thing <laughs> because my whole life, all I heard was, if you ever meet Johnny Mathis, you have to tell him somebody wants to marry him. Well, I never went up <laughs> telling my mom that Johnny Mathis was gay. It wouldn't have done her much good, but you know, all we ever heard in our house was Johnny Mathis, Johnny Mathis, Johnny Mathis. So Michael and Jackson, so, so no, she didn't really care that much about Michael Jackson. After things got going and I became very involved with Michael Jackson, everything changed, you know, her whole interest in him and who he was and his career and all of that. She became a fan like everybody else. Now, now clearly after Beat It and, you know, you now are going to be involved in the Thriller video. I'm assuming at this point you, you're getting a, a grasp of, okay, this is this is pretty big. This is pretty cool stuff. Um, you know, tell me, tell me about the opportunity of being on the set uh, of Thriller and working and learning that choreography and tell me about your experience. Well, that was very cool because, you know, by this time now, Michael had had some success and Michael Jackson, um, he was feeling much more confident, uh, dancing with dancers really for the first time. He pretty much had only danced with his brothers. So this was a whole unique experience for him. And, by the time Thriller came around, everyone was just, you know, salivating, waiting to see what he was going to come up with next. I mean, so major in, in that world. And and again, you know, MTV was still a baby. We were still in the those early baby years. So the fact that Michael Jackson now asked John Landis to be involved. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And brought Michael Peters back to do it again. Um, everybody was really ecstatic. And when this time, uh, well, it was Michael Jackson, Michael Peters and I again, same process. Um, but Michael Jackson... Uh, had a lot more to contribute. It was a lot more fun. Um, he came in one day with like monster makeup on. We had two days of rehearsal and Michael Peters again had already basically put the, the piece together, the whole thriller dance. And, and he and I knew it and we taught it to Michael and Jackson. And Michael had a few comments about, you know, oh, let's put this on this beat. Let's put this on this beat. You know, oh, you got to feel it, you know? Uh, so, 
But he came in the second day with just the three of us with monster makeup on. And the, and he said, let's go make monster faces in the mirror. So the three of us had to st- <laughs> stand in front of the mirror making like scary monster faces, you know. It, it was a lot more fun. And he he was a lot more fun, you know. He was a lot more relaxed. He was coming into being who he is, was. And um, yeah, it was great. And then when he came into the room with uh, the mega hitters in the dance world in L.A., uh, it was fantastic. Um, I think everyone was, not me because I'd been with him already, but I think the newbies who were with him, uh, who were the divas of L.A. dance community, um, didn't, probably wondered, was he going to be able to pick up the intricacies of the rhythms of the choreography? Not so much the movement, but the rhythms that Michael Peters would come up with were really original and very innovative, not what you're used to hearing or catching. And I think everyone was questioning, how long is it going to take Michael Jackson to really fit in with everybody? Well, you know, I'm telling you, man, the minute he started moving, he kind of like made everybody else look like beginning jazz 101 or something. I mean, he just has this dynamism that, well, you know what it looks like? It's hard to describe. It's what we all saw and and watched for all those years. I mean, he was a, he was magical. He was gifted in that way in many ways, but his dancing ability, what he brought, what he was able to grab from the streets, grab from, Charlie Atkins and anybody else he had worked with, with the Jackson five and grabbed from Michael and eventually grabbed from me uh, and the street dancers he would bring in on Sundays and work with them. You know, he, he really became the, 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 the answer to what had been missing in American dance for so long from Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, really. Uh, I mean, before that, the Nicholas brothers and a few others, even Shirley Temple, but you know, there was nobody for a long time. And then there was Michael Jackson. And that was that. That was history. And you know what? What about, I, I'm, I'm an avid Michael Jackson fan. And, you know, I don't ha- see a lot of, of, you know, footage or interviews from Michael Peters at this time. What was his energy like? And what was he like uh, at this time, you know, during this whirlwind of this iconic work that's being created between Beat It and, and Thriller, what was his work ethic like? What was his mental state like that you can remember? Just give me a little more context around him. Uh, well, you know, he was he was really fun. He could be really fun. He could be really, really crazy. Um, but Michael, Michael had a lot of personal challenges that he had to kind of overcome. And unfortunately, I don't think he ever had the full opportunity to, to get past that. He passed away with AIDS. Um, but his his father was black, his mom was Jewish, and he grew up in a very difficult community, first of all. So that kind of gave him a confusion about a little bit about who he was. Was he black? Was he Jewish? Where did he fit in? Um, and he always felt that, and this is my own personal feeling of having known him intimately, but I, I think he, as much glory and accolades as he received, I think he always felt that he should have received more. Um, I don't think he was ever really satisfied, uh, which is such a shame. And it's such a shame that he passed away in the 90s and 
never really got to see the real effect and influence that just his one piece thriller had and continues to have on the world. Probably, probably the most danced piece of choreography in the history of the world. And wow. had he seen that, maybe his life would have been different. I don't know. But, wow. you know, he, he, his work ethic, um, he was a real taskmaster. Uh, sometimes he drove you a little bit further than he should have. Um, I was one of the few people he ever listened to, and I was one of the few people who ever stood up to him. And sometimes I would say, nope, no more rehearsing, Mike. Everybody's dead tired. They're going to get hurt. No, I want to do it. I said, nope, we're walking out the door, man. We're walking out the door. Um, but he was a fanatic. Dance is what he lived for. You know, that was it. There was nothing else in his life but dance. So, um, wow. Incredible, incredible man. When, when, when Thriller comes out, you know, tell me about that. Cause that was, you know, one of those moments that, you know, I wish I was there for, you know, and <laughs> like, tell me what it was like seeing the world reaction to that video and your emotions at that time. Oh, well, you know, recently, uh, my husband and I went to see the 3d version of Thriller and, yeah. uh, I'm telling you, uh, Corey was, a the reaction I had being in the movie theater and seeing that in 3D flashed me back to the feeling that I had when I first saw it. It was mind boggling. It was bigger than life, uh, even though it was on a TV screen on MTV. It was just otherworldly. We, every, I don't know, it was, you know, there was not a, the, the word viral didn't exist in those days because there was no social media. There were no computers. There were no cell phones. So that word viral didn't, it related to being sick. But, uh, you know, Thriller was viral before there was such a thing as viral. I mean, it was all anybody talked about. It was all anybody talked about. And to then say that uh, you were one of the zombies and everybody wanted to go, well, which one? And then you could point yourself out. I mean, it kind of made us all little instant celebrities. And that was a trip. That was, I mean, Beat It brought me a lot of incredible, positive uh, work, employment, jobs, notoriety. Um, but having been a part of Thriller just kind of increased it about a billion fold. Um, it, it, it was it was a revelatory piece and a revolutionary piece, and it changed the face of not only music, but um, uh, video, if there was such a thing. It had just begun, and I think it set the bar uh, for anybody who had any interest in having movement involved in uh, a presentation that they were doing. So it, it changed everything. It, it, it just changed everything. There was no wow. going back after that, you know? So a after Thriller, um, you know, obviously, you know, Michael's an iconic star that a star we've never seen before. But how did it come to be that you were going to be working closer with him um, further beyond that? This time you're Michael Peters' assistant. Uh, so how'd that happen? How'd you build that relationship and that trust with him well, to move, to work with him further? Uh. I didn't do, I'm not exactly sure what was, what happened in, in MJ's mind. Um, I do know that, uh, 
probably be just because of my personality. I'm somebody who likes to try to make people feel at home and make people feel good and, um, and, and to rid them of worry or anything like that. And so I was always joking around with MJ and joking, laughing with him. And he wasn't used to that really outside of the family. So, uh, you know, I never really hung out with him outside of work, but during work time, we had a great fun relationship and that continued through on the set of beat it. And even with thriller, you know, when we were downtown shooting it, it was late at night, it was freezing cold. And, you know, he was in the trailer a lot and I, you know, and I talked to the dancers and I said, Hey, you guys, you know, you've been working with him for like a, several days now, you know, just go knock on the trailer and, 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 and say, you want to go in, you know? And so they did, you know, and they'd knock and he was just waiting for people to reach out to him because he was so shy. So, um, I don't know. We just got along really well. And probably he, you know, being an assistant at that time, I'm not sure what it's like now, but you know, I was probably about the best assistant that existed. I, I, I was a perfectionist down to the, you know, the glance of your eye or the tip of your finger had to be precise because I, I was so proud of Michael Peters and his work that I wanted the world to see it as it was created. So I was a fanatic in making everybody look perfect. And Michael Jackson was always been a fanatic, was always a fanatic. And he certainly appreciated that. Um, but I just got a call one night and I was sitting here in the living room and um, Michael Jackson, it was Michael Jackson on the phone. And I'll tell you a little funny story, but you know, his, his voice goes, he goes, um, hi, is, uh, is Vince there? And I said, who's this? It's Michael Jackson. I said, get the fuck out of the here. Who is calling me? <laughs> no, really, Vince, it's Michael Jackson. I said, this is not fucking Michael Jackson. Who is this? No, Vince, really, it's me. It's Michael. It's M It's Michael. I was like, oh, Michael, I'm so sorry. I said, fuck, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he started laughing like a kid, you know, and he said, ask me what I was doing. And said nothing really and he asked me if I would come over to a sound studio over in Hollywood and uh, a couple blocks away actually and I did and he played uh, the music of Smooth Criminal for me he didn't really have many of the lyrics asked me what I thought and we had some conversation hung out for a little while and uh, then I was I said well I guess I'll go and he handed me a cassette remember those things cassettes oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he handed me a cassette and, and I said, well, what do you want me to do with this? You know, do you, do you want me to dance in the video or what? And he goes, no, no, no. I want you to, I want you to listen to this music over and over again and let this music tell you what it wants to be. And then I want you to call me back and you tell me what you think this video should be. I want you to direct it. So I want you to direct it and choreograph it. So I, 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 I didn't really know how to respond. And and I was in complete turmoil because Michael Peters was my best friend. And, um, and I knew I had no idea why Michael Jackson asked me. And I still have no idea why, to be honest with you. Um, and I called Michael Peters to share the news and, um, it kind of ended our relationship, our friendship. Um, he, accused me of stealing the job away from him. And um, it was very hard. It was very, very emotionally hard for me. Um, but I, I just was honest with 
Michael Peters and told him, listen, I have no idea why me. I have no idea. I did nothing about this. This is what happened. I tried to explain. Um, he didn't want to talk. And uh, that was the end of that. And we saw each other infrequently after that, um, socially sometimes, but it really destroyed our relationship. Um, but that was, uh, uh, but then it began my relationship with MJ and that continued on and off for 17 years. So now you've been an assistant. Um, and I know that you were, you know, were working very closely with Michael Peters during the process of Vita and during the process of Thriller, but now you are in the captain's seat and now you are responsible for creating. And at this point too, I, I want to say this. I, I like to compare Michael Jordan and LeBron James. I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but I am. And there's a big thing between when Michael Jordan came into the league and he became a great basketball player. There wasn't the pressure to be Michael Jordan because no one was looking for you. But then you have <laughs> LeBron James and LeBron James comes into the league and he's 16 years old and he's already on the cover of Sports Illustrated and you're going to be the man. And so for you coming into this position in your career, you're now working with not a Michael Jackson who's becoming Michael Jackson. You're working with Michael Jackson at the pinnacle of Michael Jackson. So what challenges are you faced now as being the captain and the leader of this next venture in your life? Well, um, just to complicate it even more, um, I caught Madonna's eye. So, um, and I did a commercial with Madonna. So during that time period, from the beginning of Smooth Criminal, it was Madonna calling me, Michael Jackson calling me, Madonna calling me, Michael Jackson calling me. Each one, uh, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this, I need you to do this. So I, you know, I'm, nothing overwhelms me. I kind of think that, that, that opportunities present themselves and the most important thing is that you have to be ready to come up to plate, you know? I mean, if you're not ready, those there goes your opportunity. So I felt like I, I accepted it um, completely and joyfully, and I knew I was good. I, I believed I was good. Um, I That wasn't the first thing I ever choreographed. I had been choreographing for a while for other people and for dance companies and stuff like that. Um, but I knew that, I knew how specific Michael Jackson was. And I knew that if he picked me, I was the right guy for the job, you know? And so honestly, I never questioned it. And I, my head was not inflated. The most, I think the, the first thoughts I had was, oh my God, I'm going to be able to give all my friends a job. I mean, I think that, <laughs> that was kind of what I think I thought first, you know, besides the fact of, oh my God, I'm going to be creating for Michael Jackson. It was like, oh my God, and I can give all my best friends jobs, you know? <laughs> so, and I did, and it was, it, the whole experience was phenomenal to be with your creative family doing one of the most creative pieces on the face of the earth at that time with, with the man who was becoming the king of the world. Um, but one of the things that's always been important to me is to be professional so I never tried to hang out with Michael or Madonna uh, after work or, hey, I really want to be your friend or anything. I, when we worked together, it was superb. And um, 
if you had seen us working together, you would have thought that we were the best friends in the entire world and that we carried this on outside of the working relationship. But we didn't. You know, at the end of the day, I went home because I've always been somebody who likes to have my privacy. Um, but in the work environment, it could not have been better. Um, first of all, he was back. He was still doing his album. He couldn't be there for a lot of it. And he just said, do it. You know what you're doing. I came to him with an idea and he fell in love with it and gave me a soundstage and, and uh, Ikigama camera and uh, incredible Meyer sound system and said, tell them what you want. And so I would tell them what I wanted. They would build the set for me. I would choreograph stuff. I would, I would give a class every day to everybody and I would then choreograph and put everybody in the set and shoot it and go to Michael's house uh, over on uh, in Havenhurst, uh, over in the Valley, and show him what I was doing. And he would say, oh, I really like it. I think you need a few more dancers, don't you? I was like, yeah, <laughs> I have more friends, you know? So uh, yeah, Mike, so got a few more dancers and work a couple more days and shoot it, take it back to him. Oh, I really like it. I think you need a few more dancers, like 10 more dancers, don't you? Yeah, Mike, you know, so it just kept growing that way, <laughs> just growing, growing, growing. And he was excited as hell and said, oh, I think you need a second floor up there, don't you? Yeah, Mike, sure, you know? So it was like, uh, I've said this before, but it was like being a kid in Santa's workshop, you know, where he says, pick all the toys you want. You can have anything you want. And that's what it was. There was like no restriction on cost. There was uh, no restriction on time. There was no restriction in any way he would say to me you want me to extend the mix you tell me what you want you know tell me how many bars you want to do what do you want to block it was this that kind of creativity and you know coming from my theater world um the reason there's that one crazy section in there it starts with the cat on the piano and then they get into this whole weird slow motion thing that was an improvisation it was, it, it started as an improvisation. It was just one of the things that I did to kind of get everybody warmed up. Well, MJ had never done anything like that. And it blew his mind so much that he said, we're shooting that, we're shooting that tomorrow. The world's never seen anything like that. We're shooting that tomorrow. So all of a sudden that became part of it. And that was the whole way that that uh, incredible piece, I'm not talking about Moonwalker, I'm just talking about Smooth Criminal. That's the way it developed and that's the way it was created. Um, it was, uh, I put the whole thing together. I taught it to him. He came in to, together. We changed a couple little things, but not much. And, um, and then we rehearsed and man, it was, it was, uh, that was when things, that was when I really started flying in my mind, not so much before, but when MJ came onto the set and I saw him actually dancing the stuff that I had created, that's when that's when I, I felt like I had stepped into another realm. That that's when, when it happened. You know, I had the opportunity to interview Bruce Swedine, uh, who engineered the records. Yeah, and um, you know, he had his. He was telling me how he mixes all the records uh, in the dark, and he was saying that he he loved um, his one of his favorite songs was Thriller, and he mixes everything in the dark to get a vibe of just focusing on the music itself. And I asked him, I said, did you know, did Michael go into this process or Quincy um, or Rod Temperton or yourself going into this knowing that you were making songs for videos, right? Because these songs became not just songs, they became scores. So when you get these songs, are you 
conceptualizing like, you know, the Chicago nightclub scene. Like, I hear this. I see this. You know, are you seeing for the way um, the way you make me feel, you know, um, kind of this West Side Story theme? Are, are you seeing these things? Are Michael seeing these things? How are these concepts coming together? I, that was me seeing those things. That's what That was what he asked me to do, was take the music home and let it talk to me and tell me what it wanted to be. And so I came up with all of that. The, you know, Michael came up with a couple moments, to be honest. He came up with the... Uh, the crazy guy that he shoots up on the balcony and turns into an animated thing against the wall. Um, and a couple just minor, minor rhythm changes here and there. Uh, but no, uh, other than that, it, it, it was just the way it worked. He pretty much trusted, well, me or I guess other people that he worked with, but he was certainly that way with Michael Peters. Um, no, it was, uh, it, it was what he had asked me to do was listen to the music and let the music talk to me. And that's what I did. And that's what the music told me to do. So everything that came to fruition was stuff that I had already seen in my head. Um, now, I also read that you uh, had a role in uh, in choreographing uh, Michael's tour for Bad in 88. Uh, yeah, I did. I directed that tour and uh, and choreographed it. Um, what happened was Michael um, hadn't asked me at first. He went to Japan. Uh, he had hired some dancers and a band and went to Japan. And they came back from Japan and he wasn't happy. And he and Frank DeLeo, his manager at the time, called me and said, uh, hey, man, would you come and direct in? Well, everything with Michael was co-choreographed, even though Michael didn't always choreograph. The way we worked is... Like in Smooth Criminal, for instance, I would say, okay, man, so you're going to do all this stuff. You're going to come in. You're going to flip that coin. You're going to do this with these dancers. You're going to gumble up. You're going to dance with the guys, and you're going to go up onto the sound, the little stage there, and then you do your thing. Whatever you want to do, boom, that's you, you know. And then then you're going to walk. You finish that. You're going to get off. You're going to walk over to here. You're going to dance with this girl. You're going to go up with these guys. You're going to take his arm, flip him around, knock him on the ground, then you're going to do this piece of choreography, blah, blah. So... You know, and now you're going to do this. Now you're going to go up the stairs. You're going to meet this girl. Now when you get up the top, you can do whatever thing, anything you want to do. And then it would be him doing his thing. So that was kind of how we worked together, you know. I would leave pockets of movement for him to do Michael Jackson, which I never touched. You know, that was never me. Um, and that was how we collaborated together in terms of choreography, you know. Um, yeah, that's how. But, but, but as far as uh, what are the challenges now from doing uh, choreography for video, um, but now doing choreography for a tour. Uh, is there any challenges or any difference in your strategy, in your process? Uh, well, not really because, you know, everybody wanted to see the dancing from the videos. And that was the kind of the first, I mean, Michael was really the first dancing MTV artist and that's what everybody wanted to see. Of course they wanted to hear him sing, but they wanted to see those dances done exactly as they had been done on television and exactly as everybody had learned them from watching television. So, you know, everything from Beaded and Thriller and Smooth Criminal and The Way You Make Me Feel, uh, you know, and we added uh, elements of that he had done with the Jackson 5 and he had already had that choreography. I didn't touch that. Um, but, yeah, and, and, and even with improvisation sometimes, like when we did the Grammys, I'm jumping ahead, I know, but um, we did the Grammys together. And the way we did that was he was doing Man in the Mirror. 
So we worked together in the studio to give him, for him to come up with and for me to throw to him like a, a vocabulary of movement that he could pull out of his pocket and use whenever he felt like it, you know, whether it was kind of like the Baptist, I call it the Baptist, go to church, hop, or uh, mm -hmm. spinning and dropping down to his knees or standing up like uh, he's on the cross or, you know, all kinds of things. We came up with those things prior to the performance, um, not put in any specific place so that whenever he felt the urge, he had something that he could, could draw on and just whip that out and do and execute that. So, but I'll tell you one funny little story from the tour. So we kind of had this joke between us. Um, he called them magic moments. It was kind of like his James Brown kind of moment where um, he would like drop to the ground or something and pretend like something was going on and everything would stop. And then they would come out with James and put a, a cape on him, you know, and help him off the <laughs> stage. Well, with Michael, what Michael would do is he would do a fast movement and then he would freeze. And he would just stand there and wait for the entire audience to scream, just to scream, just to scream. And then he'd move. And then what eventually happened was, that was like the first time he did it. Then the second time he did it, he would make a fast movement and he'd stop. And everybody would scream. Then he'd make just a tiny little movement and stop. And then everybody would scream some more. And then he would do another, just little turn his head one way and wait. And everybody would scream some more. So <laughs> it was crazy. You know, we got into this whole like, laughing about this magic moment that was becoming like the magic century on stage you know but anyway it was uh it was just so much fun we had great time great times together and and personally in, in in your life you know at this time how are you personally you know i how are you feeling are you are you are you happy are you tired like how are you feeling during this whirlwind uh, uh of a time professionally for yourself well I'm a, I'm a pretty basically happy guy. And, um, you know, I, I never was interested in celebrity or being famous. I was always just happy to be working and making a living. Um, so I kind of stayed in the background. I never hired a publicist. I never really did that. You know, if someone contacted me about doing an interview, I would, but I, I don't know. I never, uh, I was really happy doing the work and then being with surrounded by the people that I loved, you know, in my real personal life. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm an odd person to have had this career because I'm so like anti Hollywood. I'm like the wrong, the wrong side of the tracks, you know, uh, most people who make it out here, play the game and go to the parties and do the schmoozing. And I'm not saying I'm not judging it at all, you know, but that's just not me. Um, it's, uh, I was happy to have the work. I was very grateful, always grateful, um, to have money in my pocket, money in the bank and be able to pay my rent and be able to be the creative person, the creative artist that I always hoped I would be able to be. And with all those things fulfilled, um, I had no real desire to have much more of anything. I was, I was extremely happy. My life was full. My life was full. And still uh, I, know you, I know you mentioned um, with, with Michael Peters uh, that, you know, Michael felt Michael Peters felt like uh, professionally, maybe he 
deserves a little, a little bit more credit, a little more notoriety for the iconic work that he created. Did you ever have that feeling at all for yourself personally, or you were just 100% content with, you know, I, I'm, I'm good? <laughs> no, only in the last couple of years when people steal my shit and call it their own, you know, uh, or what happened, what happened at that time, um, it was a different time for choreographers as well. Uh, it wasn't like the Dancing with the Stars time or So You Think You Can Dance time where every choreographer who does, you know, uh, a three-minute piece and is on television becomes a megastar or a YouTube star, you know. It was a whole different thing back then. Um, and part of the agreements that you did, which I regret, uh, I always had to sign contracts in which I was a work for hire, which meant I never owned one piece of my work. Either did Michael Peters. Uh, they were always owned by Madonna or Michael Jackson or whoever you did the work for. Um, and it was also important that whether they contributed or not, and I'm not saying they didn't, uh, every great artist contributes in su to some extent, um, you would pretty much have to share the credit with them. That was just the way it went. And those were the things that bothered me. Uh, but they didn't bother me then because I was so happy with what I was doing, but now they bother me. Uh, people all over the world use my choreography. I don't get a penny. I'm lucky if I get credit. Uh, even the Cirque du Soleil show, uh, Michael Jackson show in Vegas, I get no credit. I get not a penny from that. And they're using all my choreography. You know, that, that pisses you off because this work, you know, I'm a gay man. I, I don't have children. Not that I didn't want to, but it just didn't work out that way. These are my children. And to... Sorry. To not own them, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. So... The estate doesn't include me in anything. You know, they didn't even invite me for the Thriller 3D presentation here in Hollywood. You know, um, no, they don't. They 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 don't treat you as if you've done anything for Michael. Um, so, uh, in that way, those are the things that are hurtful. But uh, in terms of the creativity and the work and the collaborations with MJ, oh no, man, that was always. That was flawless. That was always flawless. Um, it's just the the repercussions and what's happened now, like say in the past fifteen years or something, uh, where I, you know those people who know me know that that's my work. But there are people who have used my work on these shows and these television shows that have millions and millions and millions of viewers and get the credit for Smooth Criminal uh, and. Uh, you know, so all these billions of people who see these shows, they think somebody else did it. And that's very hard to take. That's very hard to take. Uh, you know, what is, what would you want the legacy uh, of, of Vincent Patterson to be as a man and also as a, a talent and a choreographer? Uh, well, you know, the most important thing to me, everything that we do, um, you know, I, I, when you're an artist, I, I suppose it's the same anyone who, who has a, 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 an important visible profession aside from their personal life. Um, so being a, a choreographer and a director um, certainly is intrinsically uh, 
synthesized with who I am as a human being. But the most important thing in my life has always been to be uh, an honest man, to be a good man, um, to love people, to be generous, and to be honest. Um, And then that running parallel with um, doing work that I'm, my own work I'm talking about, of of which I'm hypercritical. Um, Anybody who knows me knows I'm a research fanatic. Uh, I, I never come to the table without days, weeks, months of research before I talk about anything. So I would like my legacy to be that um, people respect me for the man that I am, for the mentor that I've been to people that have asked me to provide them with information and education and to appreciate the work that I've done, knowing that I never ripped off anybody. I never copied anybody. I never took credit for anybody else's work and that all of this work comes from my mind and my heart. And I'm grateful for the opportunities that I've had. And um, Vincent, my, my last question is, I end every episode uh, of Silent Giants with this question. And this question was spawned off uh, because I was sitting in Bruce Wadeen's house in Florida. And I'm sitting in Bruce's house and you just see nothing but plaques and plaques and plaques and plaques um, and Grammy Awards and Grammy Awards and Grammy Awards and accolades. And um, as I'm sitting there in this room covered in awards, I couldn't help but think to myself, what have you sacrificed to get all these things? You know, um, we only have 24 hours in a day. It's only 365 in a year. Um, Wow, you sacrificed a lot to get this. Um, What have you sacrificed uh, personally uh, to achieve what you've achieved and achieve greatness in your career? I don't think I've sacrificed anything. I think that I've only gained that... um, I've never looked at the time I've spent or the energy that I've employed or uh, anything as a sacrifice. To me, it's all been elements of a perfect life. And uh, yeah, I have no regrets. And I have, uh, yeah, no, everything's good. (laughs) (laughs) Vincent, this is honestly such an honor to be able to sit down and see you and talk to you and hear your story and your experience. And, you know, I'm a diehard, diehard fan of pop culture. I'm a diehard fan uh, uh, of Michael. I'm a diehard fan of, of your work. You know, I, it's funny that I look back as a little kid and I used to, as every kid around the world sits and practices those dance moves that you make. And to be able to sit here, if you would have told me today that I'd be talking to the man who created those moves and I, I would die. And so 16-year-old me, 5-year-old me, 31-year-old me uh, is, is dying. And it's such an honor to, to meet you and hear your story. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for your interest. And I really, really appreciate it. You, you're the man. We're going to do lunch sometimes in L.A. I want to get some of that sunshine, all right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. Thank Take you. care, Vincent. Okay. Take care, my man. Bye. Thank you all so much again for tuning in to another episode of the Silent Giants podcast and to our special guest, Vincent Patterson. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. And before we get out of here, be sure to check out our other show, OPP Other People's Podcast, a show that highlights America's favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. 
I'll be sure to leave you the description to that in the description of this episode. Once again, thank you all so much. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off. Till next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.